Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Avadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So it is now March, which means it is four years since the pandemic lockdowns in the United States. They began somewhat earlier elsewhere in the world, in Europe and China, but here in the U.S. or <laughs> where Adam is at the moment, it marks four years. So we thought we would start a small series of segments this month on what we're calling long COVID. That's not only the medical condition per se, but the long-term effects of the COVID pandemic. We'll take a look in the coming weeks at the acute health impacts but also broader topics like pandemic preparedness. And we thought we'd start with something that's increasingly in the financial headlines, but which may have so far gone unnoticed by some of our listeners. The data point there is 11, as in 11%. And that is the share by which the value of commercial real estate in the United States has declined since March 2022 when the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates. A new paper out from the National Bureau of Economic Research. It's coming out this month about the risks of commercial real estate loans on bank balance sheets. The report indicating that if interest rates do remain elevated and property values do not recover, default rates could reach levels comparable or even surpassing those seen President Biden signed a bill officially ending the COVID-19 national emergency. However, the effects of the pandemic are still felt in various sectors across the U.S., especially in the real estate market for office spaces. Those interest rate hikes are themselves related to the pandemic by way of lockdowns and supply chain disruptions and the resulting inflation. But of course, the lockdowns also affected our relationship to commercial real estate in, in a more direct way, you know, with working from home and e-commerce, etc. The result was falling prices of commercial real estate, and now also a potential financial crisis as those properties start to go delinquent. And this is a story that's true around the world. We want to get both sides, the international story, of course, but I thought we would start in the United States. So, Adam, people talk about the U.S. economy booming in various ways. Soft landing is the phrase that always comes up when we're talking about the U.S. economy and its relationship to the pandemic. Even residential real estate in the U.S. has stayed resilient, it seems to me, despite interest rate hikes. So, yeah, why has the commercial real estate sector so conspicuously been been ailing since the pandemic? Or is this really a global trend beyond the U.S.? It's a global trend to a considerable extent, and it's driven by two very powerful forces, which both originate in the shock of the covid um, epidemic. And the first is the most general one, and that's the monetary policy shock linked to COVID by way of the 
dislocation in supply and demand that followed the shock of 2020 and the price spikes that ensued and the surge in inflation, therefore measured inflation in 2022-23 with ultimately interest rates rising more rapidly and more comprehensively around the world than they have really since the early 1980s. And that was always going to shock every sector with leverage, every sector that's borrowed and the biggest sector overall in the world economy that is leveraged with debt on the basis of collateral is is real estate comprehensively all the way around the world. And whereas notably in the US, the housing, um, so accommodation, single-family apartments and houses have relatively long duration mortgages. And so the effect of the interest rate shock is generally on the churn of buying and selling on the margin, if you like, rather than the stock of all housing, because most people have locked in interest rates. Commercial real estate is different. The terms of loans are shorter. They're much more exposed to a flexible interest rate risk. And quite a lot of the lending is not in conventional mortgages at all, but by banks and various types of private finance. And so that's why the the interest rate shock that's affecting everyone is as dramatic. And then the second factor, also COVID related, is that whereas housing is a fundamental human need that doesn't go away, and the vast majority of people are housed, there's only a very unfortunate minority is unhoused at any given moment. And so you know, the worst comes to the worst with relatively sluggish interest rate movements. Everyone just sits tight. And so prices don't fluctuate that badly. Commercial real estate is driven by the fluctuations of the real economy, because what defines commercial real estate in the general terms is it's it's real estate owned for business purposes, whether that's to let out large multifamily units for populations which are more mobile or renting longer term, or whether it's everything from shops to offices to cell phone towers. You don't own these things for anything other than the rent that they generate. And those fluctuate more. And of course, during COVID, we've had a series of shocks to bricks and mortar retail. But I think the story that is really grabbing the headlines and driving this sense of crisis is the shift in working patterns. And the fact of the matter is that since the COVID crisis, um, there has been quite a dramatic move in the number of workers who are working five-day office weeks. And um, in the United States, more than one-third of households report working from home more frequently than they did before, and workers go to the office about 3.5 days a week. That's a 30% reduction from the pre-pandemic norm. Now, America is particularly extreme in this respect. It's a very digital society, and it's one in which people have relatively spacious homes and adjusted relatively quickly to this new working pattern. In Europe and Asia, these trends are less pronounced, though they're visible notably in Europe as well. And so here, in the office sector of commercial real estate, you have this double wham of rising interest rates on relatively flexible interest rates on loans which don't just hold their interest rate regardless of the global situation, which is true for domestic uh, real estate, and a structural shift in the underlying demand for the property. And it's the combination of those two things which is really destabilizing not just the actual price of uh, offices, but the future prospective price of offices. And if you look at the United States, out of a total stock of 20 trillion worth of commercial real estate, that includes multifamily rentals, specialty sports facilities, retail, industrial, healthcare, the whole works, the office element out of that 20 trillion is 3.2 trillion. And it's those, it's that segment which is really most at risk currently and has repriced dramatically. And when the offices reprice, the 
balance between the underlying loan and the value of the of the building it's secured on shifts to the disfavor of the borrower and so then they have to renegotiate the loan it's very it's technical stuff so people saw this coming so they took out hedges against interest rate movements because they're not dumb and they don't want to expose themselves to the risk of, of interest rate volatility so quite a lot of the pressure is coming through the expense of holding the hedge because you pay a price to have a hedge against an interest rate movement and as interest rates move of course the price of that hedge goes up and it resets once the value of the property shifts too much or it simply expires so in these first order second order third order ways that segment a 3 trillion dollar segment is under really quite massive pressure. And that's same ballpark impact slightly more than the scale of subprime mortgage securitization before 2008. So it's a it's a substantial segment here that's under very considerable pressure, both from the interest rate and the underlying value side. Yeah, so I was also thinking about the 2008 financial crisis. And I'm curious whether this could again become a global financial crisis again triggered by real estate. Of course, the last earlier financial crisis was was residential real estate that triggered that cascade of effects. But in this case, I'm wondering, I mean, are global financial institutions made vulnerable specifically by their own local real estate markets this time, as opposed to, you know, links to the US real estate market specifically? So again, this is a really fascinating story. I mean, one of the things that I was, you know, uh, sort of drove to the fore in the history of the 2008 crisis was the role of European banks in the American real estate crisis of 2008. And in this moment, we're seeing also a kind of double effect. We're seeing on the one hand, a very considerable readjustment and repricing of real estate in several European markets driven by the interest rate decisions of the ECB and the cooling of the European economies. Notably, the German real estate market is seen as a huge shock in the last 12 to 18 months. So that is affecting lenders and property businesses in Germany, where we've seen some fairly large bankruptcies, which ripple through the world economy. So German crises driven by German real estate price falls having global effects. But the other thing to reckon with is just the sheer scale of the US pool. I mean, a $20 trillion pool of assets attracts investors from all over the world, right? If you're trying to allocate really large portfolios of money, you need to, you can't be picky, right? You need to look at all possible assets. And famously, foreign investors hold quite a lot of US treasuries as a so-called safe asset, as a basic, highly liquid asset. And foreign investors are also quite heavily invested in US real estate in various ways. Because it's such a big pool, it's such a sophisticated market, it's securitized and through real estate investment trusts, there are ways of buying into the US market, which mean that German investors are quite heavily exposed to the American office crisis to the tune of maybe 10 to 15% of the portfolios of the specialized real estate lending banks that exist in Germany. Category of bank, which one really wishes didn't exist. They should have more broadly spread portfolios, but they do exist and, and they're at risk in the current moment. In the US, interestingly, though there are big banks with exposure to commercial real estate, the banks which are really at most severe risk in the current moment are actually relatively small regional banks, which are do a huge amount of the smaller scale lending to commercial properties. I mean, there are 
you've got, to, you've got to imagine how commercial real estate lending happens. In the US, there are a million warehouses, 972,000 office buildings, 518,000 retail buildings, 214,000 hotels, and 137,000 healthcare facilities. Now, most of those are of only regional significance, and they are classic clients of smaller regional banks in the US with balance sheets of 100 billion or 200 billion with very substantial exposure to local real estate markets. Those are the sorts of projects which a big Bank of America or a Citibank, let alone a JP Morgan or a really top tier actor, just isn't interested in as clients and they're not interested in the risk. And so there is this weird combination of both highly globalized American assets, which sit on the balance sheet of both European and Asian investors, and highly local entanglements between mid-scale American regional lenders and local business projects. You know, properties valued in the tens of millions, um, which of course require commercial mortgages to sustain them and which are provided by local banks rather than the mega banks that operate, you know, at the national or the global level. Whether or not this entanglement adds up to the risk of financial crisis, however, is a further question. The, the, the risk of financial crisis depends not just on losses, but losses triggering a run. In other words, losses triggering um, not just you know hits to capital of a business and hits to the profits and the dividends that they pay out, but triggering a withdrawal of deposits in a financial institution. So the lending by banks is on the asset side of their balance sheet, and that is funded by borrowing um, or deposits, which they do through depositors or through private equity combinations of people who commit large quantities of money to a particular project, or they issue debt or shares. These are the liabilities, or they take deposits. And, and we have a financial crisis, not when there are losses on the asset side, but when the losses on the asset side trigger an avalanche on the liability side of the financial system. In other words, people try and get their money out. And that is really toxic, not when it happens on a small scale, but when it happens to really big actors. That's the story of 2008. The story of 2008 are not the losses on the mortgage mortgages, which in the end, if they'd been able to hold them forever, would have been quite modest. It's the fact that those losses triggered a huge withdrawal of funding. And that's the thing to worry about right now. And, and it only really becomes serious if we see entire chains of small banks going down. If it remains confined to one or two bad apples along the Silicon Valley bank model, it's containable and the, the national monetary authorities could almost certainly stabilize. And so far, at least, when we look at the balance sheets of the really big actors, the trillion dollar plus balance sheet mega banks, they have losses in commercial real estate, but they're not big enough to threaten either their capital base, let alone trigger a kind of comprehensive withdrawal of funding. And to clarify, I mean, when it comes to that withdrawal of funding and like the kind of withdrawal of deposits, that doesn't necessarily need to be in the form of, you know, regular customer deposits, or could it also be other banks? I mean, these banks are all linked together, right? I mean, so if, you know, some banks are exposed to this commercial real estate and then need to withdraw, you know, like, can there kind of be a domino effect just among financial institutions themselves? Am I, am I sort of, you know... Yes, or, that or... is the thing to look for. I mean, the 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 headline-grabbing TV pictures of depositors standing outside banks trying to get their money back, that's the very end of the chain in a modern bank run. In a modern bank run, it is indeed the business-on-business -business kind of or investor-on-bank relations that really matter. And there are two types that... In 2008, the, the bank run on Lehman was in the so-called repo market, which is a highly professional adults-only giant churning trillion dollars a day, a market in which bonds are 
essentially lent against cash on a nightly basis. And Lehman was churning hundreds of billions of dollars of long-term securities in an overnight market. And all that needs to happen there is that people don't show up to do the overnight trade on any given day. And you have 100 billion, 200 billion, 300 billion bank run effectively, because the, the depositors are the overnight market. What we're most worried about with real estate are probably the private non-public financing of real estate. And there was a, so the real estate investment trusts are not traded. Some of them are traded publicly and you could go, you know, you can, as an ordinary investor, you can tell, or an ordinary saver, you can tell your financial advisor if you have one, or you could go on a platform and invest in a real estate investment trust. But the nicest slices of those are reserved to what's called the private market, where players like Blackstone, not Blackrock, but Blackstone offer those slices to collections of extremely high net worth individuals or family offices that run billionaires' finances. And those experienced are, have experienced run-like phenomena in the last 18 months or so. And when that happens, what the private equity firms will generally do is gate them. So they'll actually announce that, dear billionaires, that we've taken your money but you and you can have it back. You can't all have it back at once because actually what you're doing is actually a bank run. So that won't work. And there was a Blackstone fund that was gated last year, which caused the kind of ripple of panic. And that is a that's an ultra inside bank run. And if we see a lot of that happening, a lot of gating of private real estate investment trusts, that's when we know that this is getting painful. Of course, if a ultra wealthy person loses money on an investment in a real estate investment trust, it doesn't cause it's not the end of the world, right? It's a these are very strong balance sheets. These are enormously wealthy people. They can suck up their losses, basically. The, the risk to the financial system happens when larger, less strong balance sheets absorb losses like that and begin to act on the trillion dollar scale with panic. And then, then we would be facing a global financial crisis. We're a long way away from that currently. Yeah, I guess to ask uh, about the commercial real estate downturn, I'm curious what stage of that downturn we're in, I mean, you know, and, and uh, together with the associated, you know, financial problems that we're describing. I mean, is this still early stages? How much further could this go on until we hit bottom? Is it possible to say? Commercial real estate uh, movements are slow because the leases run over several years. Um, both sides in the deals, generally speaking, don't have much interest in allowing them to rupture. Um, but what we are seeing is a very telling difference between the publicly traded real estate investment trusts, which saw major repricing, in other words, a huge fall in their value, beginning in the summer of 2022, when it became clear that inflation was serious and interest rates were going to go up. And the public real estate investment trust market has downward adjusted, has fallen by 30 to 40 percent. And the really telling thing is that insofar as we have price indications of the private real estate investment trusts, these are the ones operated by the likes of Blackstone, their prices have so far only adjusted by about 9 to 10%. And what's that? what that is telling you is that the inner privileged core of this system is basically trying to avoid taking the pain. What they're hoping is that the um, real estate market will recover before they have to reprice and actually absorb and recognize the losses that have happened on these real estate investment trusts. And watching that spread between the public real estate investment trust, 
prices and the private real estate investment trust is a good way of telling where we are in the where we are in the cycle so far what we'd be expecting i think over the next couple of years is for prices to converge in a downward direction in other words the private funds to fall towards the publicly traded funds over time over several years there's no reason to think this is going to be over quick in other words interest rates are going to stay high for longer now the underlying structural changes are real and we, I think, think of the current moment, the repricing of large buildings across the big North American cities is only really beginning in earnest in the current moment. So the next several years is where we would expect this to play out. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, but we will be back in a second to continue talking about commercial real estate and the after effects of covid Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carried around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world, 
head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So, I mean, generally, are downturns in commercial real estate cyclical? I mean, has commercial real estate recently gone through other downturns like this before? And how can we tell if this is the same thing or if it's instead really a more a permanent shift after the pandemic? So on the one hand, it's an intensely cyclical sector like construction. These are buildings for a purpose. These aren't buildings that people live in on the whole, except if we're talking about multifamily rental. And even those are built for commercial reasons, right? Not because people want to have somewhere to live. And so, yes, this is a a market driven by the overall growth of the economy, the development of new sectors, and on the other hand, interest rates and the cost of borrowing money to finance construction and to hold the buildings in your portfolio. So there was a big wave a downward wave during the 1980s savings and loans crisis in the aftermath of the huge interest rate hike by Paul Volcker. There was a commercial real estate slump around the dot-com bubble of the late 90s and early 2000s. There was another wrong in 2008. There was a prolonged slump in in Europe in the Eurozone crisis. It's an intensely cyclical sector. It's one of the leading cyclical indicators, but slow moving. So it, it, it reacts and then it kind of you know, it runs through this sector. A shock will run through the sector over time. Where you see longer-term historic and structural shifts is within the commercial real estate sector. And you know, if you read the bank analysts on the current moment, they always say, "Don't abandon the category of commercial real estate altogether, but pick." Right. So it's quite clear that most of the trouble right now is concentrated in the office sector because we have this story of higher interest rates and lower occupancy. And retail has a different kind of logic where we think, for instance, that the fundamental driver here is the move from, you know, face-to-face bricks and mortar shopping to online shopping. And so regional malls, smaller scale malls have been a big sell in most analysts' uh, advice columns for years now. So that sector, which is a very substantial part, it's it's at the same scale as offices, about 2.9 trillion in the US case is structurally limping as well. But if you go down the list, there are huge growth areas. You know, the the, the flip side of a downside in retail is very large uh, investments in, in warehouses, which have been one of the growth areas of commercial real estate for years now. Big box containers, really, for the online distribution system that is growing. Another really, really hot sector of commercial real estate are everything to do with the digital economy, because the digital economy is not weightless and does have a footprint. And the two elements are cell phone towers, which have a combined value of about $400 billion dollars the real estate on which cell phone towers are placed and the cell phone towers themselves 400 billion dollars and data centers for the ai revolution where you have to have these specialized buildings to house incredibly powerful computer systems 200 billion dollars and investing in those right now strikes many investors as a you know hugely attractive long-term proposition so There is a cyclical story driven by the movement of the interest rate and overall economic growth driven by business demand. And then within that huge variation by sector, the thing is, though, that since the development of the modern office and the modern retail system, which began, obviously, in the late 19th century, there's just an accumulation in the American case, all told, of about six trillion dollars worth of value and it'll be a long time before fancy new sectors like the digital commercial real estate market which right now you might value at 
maybe one tenth of that. Six hundred billion would be a kind of fair number. You know, it's going to be a long time before a slump in that giant old sector is offset by the growth in the younger, new dynamic elements. Yeah, I guess along those lines, I'm wondering, you know, what could theoretically, I suppose, the government do to prop up the commercial real estate market? I mean, could it design incentives for going back to work in offices and maybe that would sort of result in uh, an increase in prices again or subsidies, I guess, for converting unused spaces like malls or offices to residential real estate for which there's an acute need in the US and I imagine elsewhere, certainly here in Berlin and elsewhere in Europe. Would any of that be politically realistic or are there precedents for that kind of thing? I mean, there are there are a few sectors, after all, of social life, not just the economy, that are more comprehensively regulated than construction and, and the balance between housing and non-housing use and so on, um, shape that the entire built environment. So there is no innocence here of politics. This isn't some sort of natural market that is just driven by its own logic. It's profoundly shaped by regulation. And some of the more resilient, you know, so-called prime office locations in the world are are such because they are protected essentially by very intensive zoning regulation. So the office market in London, for instance, or Paris or prime New York, Manhattan is tightly regulated and, and there is a basic supply limitation there that is always going to create value, um, which is to do with scarcity. But your, your point about the conversion of office space to housing is an extremely live one in political discussion around the world. And certainly in the US right now, the Biden administration in recent months at the end of last year, in fact, announced a package of measures of very considerable size, 45 billion altogether, in which they repurposed the resources of the Department of Transport and Housing and even Energy through various pots of money that were available in those departmental budgets to subsidize the conversion of um, office space to housing. Because as you say, there is a fundamental imbalance between overbuilt commercial real estate and underbuilt accommodation. $45 billion is even for the US economy, you know, a a non-trivial amount of money in terms of, of the incentives, tax incentives and other types of incentives to bring about this shift. So yes, th- those options are are on the table. And they're part of a course of a suite of different types of incentives that that shape this market. Much of the commercial real estate of the world, including industrial facilities and sources, is shaped by, you know, things like enterprise zones, various types of subsidy regime that create the big box landscape so-called apparently in architectural theory terms, it's called the flatscape, not the landscape, those kind of seas of square flat buildings that we see. Those are all the effects of infrastructure decisions, tax decisions. And so the this is a, a zone where one would expect and should hope that politics could play a very creative role in achieving a rebalancing to allow, you know, f- sometimes fabulously elaborate and complex physical structures, as you say, to just remain, to stand open and to become derelict when we have millions of people desperate for better and more spacious accommodation and hundreds of thousands of people in most big American cities who are homeless would really be, a, I think, a kind of scandalous failure of the political imagination. Yeah, certainly everyone has a right to a home. I think you said that earlier. And converting these commercial spaces into residential spaces may not be the ideal, but maybe uh, would be possible. And I suppose that leads to my last question. 
which is, you know, if we look at the new economic landscape in this post-pandemic period through through the lens of, of commercial real estate right now, you know, obviously we've arrived at a new kind of equilibrium, but I I wonder whether it's a it's a negative equilibrium. I mean, with everything just kind of worse off than it was before, again, in this particular sphere. I mean, people obviously are working from home more and maybe they're doing so in ways that are not aren't always good for them even, you know, socially or, you know, physically. You know, cities at the same time are emptied out and ailing financially with the the the, the commercial real estate price drops that we're talking about. Banks are now suffering, etc. So yeah, I'm curious, you know, what does this teach us say about creative destruction? There's been some destruction here, but has it been creative or is it just destruction or are there winners I'm, I'm i'm not you know focusing enough attention on uh, i mean what, what what do you make about the overall equilibrium we've arrived at here i think this is a really profound point about economics because uh, economics is addicted to the idea of a kind of self-equilibrating system in which if you know something becomes less valuable it then becomes more attractive to buyers at some point and so what goes down will ultimately come back up again Resources are freed up through you know, the decline of one part of the economy, enabling other sectors to rise. And ultimately, the idea is the whole process is healthy and dynamic and leads to growth. And I think the what that ignores and what your question really highlights is whether or not that logic, that simple logic holds when we consider there's lots of different words for it, but something like externalities in a sense or agglomeration effects. You know, cities and and urban spaces in particular work through the aggregation of different functions in a single space, each one of which thrives in its own terms, but also generates the conditions of thriving for the other activities around it. And so if you shut an office, you don't just shut the office and allow people to work at home, you shut the business of the dry cleaners that's next door, or the people that deliver sandwiches, or the folks that do the repair on the building. And you tear away an entire, the individual decision to relocate tears away an entire ecosystem, which then negatively affects the range of options available to an entire community of people. And I don't, I think that's a very good way of thinking about the disaster which can befall cities. Um, America is littered with them, but Europe has many cases as well, indeed Asia as well. If you think about the rust belts of Northeast China, Detroit would be the obvious case in the United States with the biggest city ever to go bankrupt in the US in 2013 and the home of, of you know, the, the great success story of the American auto industry and a, a, a city which literally kind of imploded on itself with large parts of the city becoming, you know, rewilding as buildings collapsed into dilapidation and had to be torn down population collapsing and that is i think there's no way of describing it otherwise than than a net loss and it isn't as though that's then offset by rapid growth in detroit suburbs though some of detroit suburbs have grown this is overall from the point of view of society as a whole a loss because what was once a dense point of agglomeration effects is no longer that now there are stories of regrowth even in blighted spots like that and detroit recently was named by astonishing the best place to go in North America list of 2024 and no less an authority than Condé Nast where to go in 2024 as a as a you know off the beaten track destination for urban tourists in the United States there's no doubt i think that Detroit is worse is through the worst period of the early 2000s and the early 2010s 
Nevertheless, its population is lower than it was before the crisis, and so a certain benefit of agglomeration has been lost. Even in the very worst circumstances, though, before it gets that bad, predators can move in and benefit. If you look at the commercial real estate story we've been talking about and focused on here, there is a lot of discussion out there about what's called private credit. So if you can no longer get a mortgage and if you can no longer sell your you know, mortgage bonds into a fund, but you still think maybe there's some residual value in your property, and indeed it's a high-end property which previously would only have gone to those kind of sources of funding. Now, all of a sudden, there are a bunch of folks with, on the face of it, prestigious properties which are desperate for credit from anywhere just to be able to maintain their balance sheets. And this is where private credit comes in, which is off the you know off the beaten path, off out of the public lending by pools of private money, family offices, again, the ultra wealthy, or endowments that have very long time horizons brokered by private equity. And you could say that's predatory, and it is at some level, you're taking advantage of the misfortune, temporary misfortune of the the stressed borrower. But if they allow the buildings to be kept up and maintained, then of course, what they're doing in some ways is securing those agglomeration effects and preventing the complete collapse of urban ecosystems. And so there's a very complex balance here between the overall logic that your question highlights so nicely of maintaining interconnected systems where the overall benefit is much larger than the sum of individual benefits. And on the other hand, the predatory behavior of you know short-term uh, profiteering. And this is where I think the public person, the public has a really key role to play in trying to tame what are otherwise, as your question suggests, potentially very damaging dynamics of, you know, just simple capitalist real estate markets, holding them in place, if necessary, by creating opportunities for profiteering at the short run, at the, at the margin, may be the least bad alternative in situations like this. Clearly, what we want to avoid is going over the edge into large-scale, massive urban bankruptcy, because a key element of this story is also the taxes that large property owners pay. And when you shut an office, when you move the jobs out, it's also the public purse. And when the public tax, when the tax revenue is no longer available, then the public purse becomes stressed. You you know you you cut back on policing, on on infrastructure, on on education, on on health, and then you enter into a downward spiral, which is exemplified by a city like Detroit and cities in the U.S., which have essentially had to declare they can no longer provide even some of the most basic public services because of a death spiral of this type. So preventing that, mobilizing whatever resources are necessary, public and private, is essential. And if you look at it's rather interesting if you watch television, you'll see notably in the US quite a lot of advertising, notably by some very big name banks, which are all about this story. We do, you know, we offer bespoke credit for small businesses and communities to maintain them. And the image is always of a coffee shop or a nice little boutique business of some kind, which is clearly sustaining community whilst generating fat interest and fees for the bank, which is doing that. So you're being advertised, if you like, on a kind of win-win. You're being sold on a win-win model of expensive private credit so as to maintain desirable community. I suppose when it gets to that point, it may be you know, sort of too late in some ways to save what was originally in place. Uh, and I, I also should say I'm, I'm, you know, a guilty actor here. I choose to work from home. I, you know, benefit a lot from uh, e-commerce, etc. Uh, you know, I'm, I imagine most of us do. I don't want to speak for you, Adam, but I guess we can all uh, make our, our decisions uh, to kind of try to maintain the things that are of value. 
or maybe we shouldn't always have that <laughs> that decision making ability. I don't know entirely. Maybe it's we all end up for the worst sometimes because of it. But anyway, we do need to leave the conversation off here for now. But as I said, this is the first in a series on long COVID metaphorically speaking, but not only metaphorically speaking. So we'll be doing that through the month of March and we'll be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. 
In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.